the trajectory of growth that we all relied on for generations is not there any longer. Fundamentally, all across this country, we are trying to reinvent our economy. There are places that have done better since the Great Recession, and there are many places that have not yet begun to move forward. And I think the big challenge for all of us that are working in the smart growth, sustainable communities, environmental justice spaces, how do we work in our communities to help reinvent the economies that are not the economies of the 20th century, but are the economies of the 21st century? And I don't know what that's going to look like, but we need to figure it out because the trajectory of growth is not there any longer. We have to work on economic development in every single one of our communities. We have to become good stewards of not only the environment, but of the economy in our communities right now. And I think it's a great space for all of us to move into as we continue to work together going forward. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we will be interviewing thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Bernice, before we get to our guests today, one of whom is the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission, on this inaugural episode of the Infinite Earth Radio podcast, we want to acknowledge the Local Government Commission for their role as a partner in the development and production of this podcast. Yes, their support and assistance has been invaluable, and we look forward to working with them in the coming months and years to create an outstanding podcast for our audience. In today's episode, we will be interviewing Kate Meese, the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission, a nonprofit organization fostering innovation in environmental sustainability, economic prosperity, and social equity through inspiration, practical assistance, and a network of visionary local elected officials and other community leaders. Among many other things, the Local Government Commission organizes the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, and it is because of their tireless efforts that the conference is not only outstanding every year, but always evolving and inspiring. We'll also be interviewing Matthew Dalby, the director of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Sustainable Communities who in addition to all the great work they are doing to foster more sustainable and more equitable communities are a major sponsor of the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference. Kate and Matthew, welcome and thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, yes. I think our audience is interested in the human stories behind the stories. I, I certainly know that I am. So can you each share briefly what brings you to this work and what motivates you to work so hard on issues of smart growth and sustainable communities? Sure. Well, I can take the first stab at this. Well, for me, you know, it really started with my roots. I, I grew up in California's San Joaquin Valley, where smart growth really hasn't been the norm there. And a lot of people in the San Joaquin Valley suffer from diseases caused by poverty rates, dirty air, there aren't a lot of safe places to play, and there isn't access to important things like healthy food. In the San Joaquin Valley, one in six children in the valley have asthma. 
And my nephew, who's not even two years old, has already been hospitalized several times. And so for me, you know, those are odds that no child should have to face. There are bigger concerns in the Central Valley beyond some of the air quality impacts or higher rates of heart disease, diabetes, obesity. And these problems, they're not just impacting these families and residents, but it's also costly for the rest of us. Healthcare costs for diabetes are almost $600 million in the Valley. Asthma is another $150 million, and adults who are overweight and physically inactive cost at least $1.6 billion. So this is a huge concern. It's a concern for our environment. It's a concern for the health of Americans and of residents in these neighborhoods. And it's costly. So it's clear that we need to do something about these issues. And for me, having grown up in this region, I see such a high potential for change and change that can address all these issues. So in particular, designing communities that give people healthier choices. You know, for me, that's what makes me passionate about the opportunity to have safer and more convenient ways for people to walk and bike and take transit, providing housing options, connecting workplaces and shopping. I mean, these are the kinds of smart growth strategies that are smart investments and can really make a difference in people's everyday lives. So that's, that's why I'm passionate about this work. Matt? Like Kate, I've been thinking about this for much of my life. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, and I grew up in a railroad town where my entire world was within walking distance, and that included my grandmother, who lived in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I could walk to the train, take the train to Grand Central, and then get up to her house on the bus or the subway in the 70s without ever having to get to a car. And as a child, I lived in Richmond, and we lived in the suburbs of Richmond. And I couldn't walk anywhere except through the drainage ditch underneath a six-lane highway to the 7-Eleven on the other side of the highway. And that's how I walked (laughs) to get a penny candy or something like that. And I started to recognize that communities across our country were built very differently. And if you fast forward to college and graduate school, I became an urban planner. And my first job uh, was teaching planning at Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi. And Jackson, Mississippi is a city that had seen disinvestment due to a whole variety of issues, including the movement of public dollars outside of the city to the expansion of infrastructure outside the city, suburbanization, and then, of course, racism and the legacy of racism. And I became very passionate about teaching the principles of urban planning to my students so that we could all be part of the rebuilding of Jackson that needed to occur. And I approached this primarily from a planning sort of perspective and local government perspective. And then when I had the opportunity to move to the Environmental Protection Agency, I started to recognize that there were ways that many of the environmental challenges that we are all facing in our communities can be addressed through reinvestment in the built environment that allows folks the convenience of being able to walk around, amenities and job opportunities that come with a vibrant and healthy economy. So that's how I got here. And Matt, I've known you for a while. I had no idea you had taught and lived in Jackson and lived in Mississippi and taught at Jackson State. Yeah, I was there for five years teaching at Jackson State. And in fact, the program that I taught in, the urban planning program at at Jackson State was started due to a 
desegregation lawsuit that had started in the 70s, and it took a while to go through the courts, and Jackson State now has a planning program as a result of that, yeah. Wow. So, Kate, this year, the Local Government Commission is hosting the 15th annual New Partners to Smart Growth Conference in Portland, Oregon. And over the past 15 years, or at least during the time that you've been involved, what impact has the conference had and what progress has the smart growth movement made overall? What are the most visible changes you think? Sure. Well, in terms of the conference's impact over the last 15 years, I really look at how the conference has helped foster greater diversity in the movement. So from its earliest days in bringing public health officials together with community planners and starting to look at the influence of land use decisions and transportation decisions on public health to where we're at now, which is really a broad range of participants. I mean, we're bringing together youth and seniors, developers and environmental advocates, crime prevention, arts, school leaders, labor officials, and they're all coming together with a shared commitment to building safer, healthier, and more livable communities. Looking at the last 14 years, and now we're going on to the 15th year, we've been able to bring together 18,000 people around these issues. So that's huge. For the past six years, what I'm most proud of and as an organization we're most proud of and working with partners like you, Bernice, and Matt, and all the other partners across the nation is that we've been able to make equity and environmental justice a core of the programming at the conference. And I think that has been a huge necessity and it's really shaped the dialogue and evolved the dialogue in some really important ways. And then lastly, you know, we've been able to not just bring people together, but we've seen tangible results in communities. And that's really what this is all about. And I'll provide just a couple examples. We brought together community advocates from Fresno. They've been able to attend the conference on diversity scholarships that we offer. They've attended over the last five years. And they've been able to take what they learned at the conference and go home and actually influence the future of their community. In particular, there was a general plan update process that was going to shape the future growth of the community. And they were able to take a council in an area that is fairly conservative and for the first time really move forward a really ambitious, smart growth scenario in a place, like I said, that is fairly conservative and this type of growth pattern hasn't been the norm. And they attribute a lot of that success and the capacity they built and the tools they were able to bring to that conversation to the conference. So these are the types of things we're trying to seed. We also have had council members from the town of Windsor who have attended the conference eight to 10 years. And, you know, they bring most of their council to this conference. And if you go and you look at the downtown in the town of Windsor, which has been revitalized, you see all the elements of the conference and the key strategies we highlight there. You see the mixed use, you see the public square and transit-oriented development. So these are just a couple of stories of on-the-ground changes. We hear many like them from across the nation, but really the success has been the diversity, being able to put equity and environmental justice at the core of these conversations, and then to see changes on the ground in communities. And Matt, the Office of Sustainable Communities is a major sponsor of the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. Can you tell us a little about the Office of Sustainable Communities and the work that that office does at EPA? 
Sure. The Office of Sustainable Communities actually started as a small division, a smaller component here at EPA in the 1990s. And from the beginning, it was an office that was set up to try to help communities grow better. And when I say grow better, that means have development patterns that allowed for growth to help with meeting environmental challenges, economic challenges, community challenges, and public health challenges. And we you know, have no regulatory authority over land use here at the Environmental Protection Agency. So what we did was we looked at our stakeholders who were working on growth and development issues and asked them, what are some of the principles that could be used to help communities guide their own growth and development? So we worked with what is known as a smart growth network to help develop 10 principles of smart growth. We have shared best practices and policies that local governments and states and such can adopt to grow better, to grow in ways that are compact and mixed use and reuse previously developed sites. We've looked at a variety of policies that have impacted the way communities grow and develop and looked at some of the guidelines that help shape the way communities grow and worked with the standard setters and the folks who put those guidelines together and have sought ways to show how those guidelines can be changed so that communities could grow better. And then, you know, certainly since the mid-2000s, we have done very direct technical assistance with communities that have asked for our help. And so we have a set of tools that can help communities look into their own zoning codes and their own comprehensive plans and things and see what they might want to change in order to, again, grow more compactly with a mix of uses and ways that would allow both public and private investments to be made into existing communities. In the Obama administration, we got much bigger. We went from a small component at EPA to a, from a division to an office. And we've been able to work in this administration very, very directly with a whole host of other federal agencies that make public investments in communities. And we have all operated under the idea that communities know best the types of investments that they want to make. And um, we've had some success in making sure that our investments at EPA, investments from other agencies like HUD and Department of Transportation are being used by communities to meet them at their needs. So, Matt, similarly to the question that I asked Kate, in the time that you've been involved in the smart growth and sustainable communities movement, what impact do you think the movement has had on the way we think about and implement growth and development policy in our country? I think that the top line takeaway would be that over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, I think that the smart growth strategies and approaches have empowered communities to take control over the types of development patterns that they want. The way our communities are built and rebuilt and revitalized over time are a direct result of a variety of things, including local public policy, state-level public policy, some federal policies, investments that are made by the public sector and the private sector. And I think that, again, the number one takeaway is that communities, in part because of the smart growth movement, have started to recognize that they that communities can control their growth future. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. Our sense, uh, Bernice and I, is that historically the smart growth and sustainability movements have not had issues of equity or environmental justice at their core. I, I recognize Kate has talked a little bit about how this is changing and some real progress has been made. But where would you assess we are with, with that? And, well, first you can agree or disagree with our assessment of events historically. But where do you assess we are 
with integrating more equity and environmental justice into the smart growth and sustainability movements? And where do we need to go from here? Well, I agree. It absolutely hasn't been a big enough focus. And part of that, you know, when the movement started, people assumed to the extent that, that there was an intentionality about it, that these strategies would result in benefits for all community members that by cleaning up the air, by providing more housing and transportation options, that there would be broad benefits. But we know that the practice didn't always live up to the principle. And so we're seeing a shift in response to a lot of the issues that have come up related to displacement and gentrification. So we're seeing smart growth models like Portland and Seattle who have realized the investments they made that put them at the front of sustainability issues brought up uh, tremendous issues around equity and environmental justice. So we're seeing models now where communities like Portland and Seattle are mapping future gentrification risks. They're actually putting information on public websites that show by neighborhood where public investments are being made. And I think that's really important to put that information out there. We see a lot of communities forming equity task force, investing in neighborhood development to build the capacity of existing residents and businesses to share in any improvements that happen. And so, you know, I think we're starting to see a lot of momentum build up around these these initiatives. And it's not just the big cities either. I recently met with some public officials from the city of Salinas, which is a small agricultural-based community in California, and they're forming a racial equity task force and looking at all their investments now through a lens of how will this impact all community members and what is this going to do to close or further the racial equity gap. So, you know, I think we still have a long ways to go, but I think it's very positive that we're seeing this as the core of many of the conversations that are happening around smart growth, including at our our national conference. To be clear, there's certainly equity issues that go beyond the smart growth and community design discussions. So we know that even the best smart growth strategy is not going to be able to address systemic obstacles like income inequality. So there are things that go far outside of the movement that we're talking about. But that said, we do need to do everything we can within the smart growth community to assure greater access to housing, transportation options, to fresh food, good jobs, public schools, and safe places to walk, bike, and play. And and this issue is bubbling up in a big way here in California and across the nation. I mean, we look at some of the affordable housing crises that are happening in the Bay Area and elsewhere, and there do need to be substantial changes to address those issues. So I think this is the start of a much longer conversation that needs to happen, and we're starting to finally coalesce and agree that this is going to be the biggest, if not one of the biggest, issues of our time. I appreciate that answer, actually, Kate. That was great. I'm going to take a little bit of a longer view here, right? trained as a planning historian, right? And so if we take World War II and post-World War II suburbanization as a starting point, it's taken us 80 years to get to the place where we are right now. And those 80 years included a huge amount of disinvestment in existing communities. 
disinvestment in cities and towns across the U.S. It also included a huge change in the way our national economy works, our regional economies have worked, and even our local economies have worked. I think that both smart growth, sustainable communities approaches, and environmental justice and equitable development approaches all are focused on one big thing there, and that is how do we reinvest in our core communities? How do we reinvest in the cities and towns that for 80 years we've been leaving behind? So I think smart growth approaches, folks who work on smart growth and sustainable communities have always been overlapping with environmental justice approaches and strategies as long as both have been around. And I think there are many places for us all to continue to do better and for all of us to begin to address some of the specific issues that Kate mentioned, including access to food and affordable housing and things like that. But fundamentally, we're all interested in the same thing, which is vibrant, thriving, environmentally sustainable communities. And I am very optimistic about the path that we're going forward. The one thing that I do want to mention, though, that has created sort of a probably a bigger change than we all even recognize at this point is that the economy while it was changing significantly between post-World War II and today, it changed a whole lot as a result of the Great Recession, just 2007, 2008, 2009, right? And whereas many of us who were working on smart growth sort of felt that our smart growth approaches could help sort of get better environmental results out of the trajectory of growth that we were on, the trajectory of growth that we all relied on for generations is not there any longer. Fundamentally, all across this country, we are trying to reinvent our economy. There are places that have done better since the Great Recession, and there are many places that have not yet begun to move forward. And I think the big challenge for all of us that are working in the smart growth, sustainable communities, environmental justice spaces, how do we work in our communities to help reinvent the economies that are not the economies of the 20th century, but are the economies of the 21st century? And I don't know what that's going to look like. We need to figure it out because the trajectory of growth is not there any longer. We have to work on economic development in every single one of our communities in order to address the environmental challenges and that Kate talked about before, the environmental challenges that all of us are working on day in, day out. We have to become good stewards of not only the environment, but of the economies in our communities right now. And I think it's a great space for all of us to move into as we continue to work together going forward. Um, thank you both for those uh, very thoughtful answers. I, I think that each of your answers could have opened up conversations that could fill a whole other show. But unfortunately, we have time constraints and need to move on. We have a, a little segment we call the lightning round where we ask each of our guests the same three quick questions. Um, you may have answered these questions to some degree already, but we're going to give it another shot. So let's dive in. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? Here's where I am on this. I believe that if there was public policy that could help increase the capacity of communities, community stakeholder groups, local elected officials, to help figure out what their future economic growth would be, that would allow communities to begin to make sure that they connect their future economic development priorities with their built environment priorities, with their growth and development priorities, and their embedded environmental challenges. We could create public policy that would help increase the capacity of communities to think about economic development and envision what their economic development future is. That would be like my number one public policy priority that we could implement. Yeah, and I think building on that capacity issue, 
For me, I think we really need to develop a stronger leadership pipeline that is more reflective of our communities. I look around in California, which is arguably one of, well, it is one of the most, potentially the most diverse and progressive states in the nation. And women only represent 28% of our city council members. We have 14% of California cities that are completely without female representation. And the numbers are even lower when you look at diversity. 14% are Latinas. For Asian and African Americans, we're only at 3%. So this is an issue when we're asking our elected leaders to represent the community needs. So to change that, I think we need to do a better job at connecting smart growth to the immediate concerns of the community, and we need to provide opportunities to build the capacity so that future leaders can step up and better represent their communities. What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? I'm going to be sort of very broad here. I think if stakeholders in communities could spend some time envisioning what our communities will be looking like in the next 20 or 30 years. Have a vision of that, even if it's in somebody's mind, or you could write it down or draw a picture of it. Spend some time thinking about what you want your community to look like in the next 20 years and stick with it and then see what are the pieces that need to be pulled together in order to get there. And the pieces have to be thought of very, very broadly, like economic drivers, public policy, and even down to what do streets look like? Where did the trees go and things like that? So I think it's having some imagination to envision what our communities can look like, I think would be a great thing if we all thought about that. I think that's right. And the the key to me and what you said, Matt, is these are our communities. We all have a responsibility to put forward a vision and to step up and make sure that our vision is realized. So For me, it's, you know, make sure your voice is heard. Ask what your elected officials are doing to ensure that the community's policies and investments are equitable. Follow the money. I mean, that's where you're going to see where the real priorities in your community is. So make sure that the investments are supporting your interests and your vision for the community and get involved, whether that's in a leadership role, running for office, supporting politicians that run on these issues, attending public meetings. We do all have the responsibility to make sure the communities work for everyone and that our visions are realized. So building on that and just tweaking this question just a little bit, if you're successful in the work that you're doing, what does our country, what do our communities look like over 30 years from now? The question originally was what would the world look like, but I don't think any of us can predict what the world is going to look like. (laughs) Let's try and narrow it down to our country and our communities. Mm I think the key is going to be diversification. There's so much unknown. We've seen dramatic changes due to technology, due to the economy, as Matt pointed out, and due to climate change. So in order to be successful, whatever the future holds, we can't have dependencies on one source of water, one source of fuel, one source of electricity or transportation. That's not going to meet the needs and provide us the buffer moving into the future. So for me, it's about resiliency. It's about communities that are producing their own renewable energy that are coming up with creative ways to reuse or recycle water, to reduce water use, and that are taking advantage of all these different mobility options that are springing up. That's, to me, what the vision of the future community looks like. That's great. I would add on top of that, 
choice. Our communities are places where folks, where I'll say folks, I'll say my kids, my grandkids, everybody's next generation has a choice in how to get around, meaning you have to have a driver's license. I would hope not. If you want to get around without having to get a driver's license or a car, you have other choices. Choices in where to live. I think that in my generation, it was pretty clear that folks would live in the suburbs, right? And I think the choice of where to live is, for many of us, so much more expanded than it was. But then we also need to be addressing issues like affordability, which, you know, there's public policy related to that, but there's also supply and demand issues related to that. So it's choice in where to live, how to get around, jobs, the types of jobs, the ability to move up in jobs. And so it's choice, jobs, and how do you get around And I think we can get there. I've got to say, you know, when we have these really challenging conversations, it can feel overwhelming, but I'm absolutely optimistic. I think we can get there because I see elements of this happening in communities across the nation. And I see how much progress we've had in the three and a half decades that LGC has been working on smart growth and the 15 years we've been holding new partners. So I think we've got a lot of the right minds thinking about these issues and we've seen momentum that we haven't seen in the past. So I think we can get there. I agree. Great. Thank you both for taking the time to be with us today. And we look forward to seeing you both at the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference in Portland, Oregon from February 11th through the 13th. And we want to thank you all for listening today. You can learn more about the conference at newpartners.org. And you can learn more about the Local Government Commission at lgc.org. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infineearthradio. 